We have a special treat this morning. Instead of hearing from me again, like you always do, we have a special guest with us, one of our, our members of our congregation now for several years, two years. Um, and she is the assistant professor of Old Testament at Mid-American Nazarene. But today she is a full professor of Old Testament at Redemption Church. So let's give it up for Christina Vaughn. Good to be with you today. This is my second year, like I said. I first came in the summer when we were going through the book of Exodus. I was like, yeah, these are my people right here. <laughs> so it's such a pleasure to get to know all of you. I do admit, though, that today I'm going to go a little bit outside of my jurisdiction because I'm going to start with a story today in the year 1945. Now, 1945, we know, ends World War II, and at this point, all of the troops were starting to return all over the world, back to their respective countries, and Japan had deployed troops to the Philistines, and after their defeat by the Allied troops, the Japanese troops started to leave Philistines to go back to their home country of Japan, all left except for one man by the name of Haru Onoda, and we have a picture of, of him up here on this screen. Now, Haru Onoda was deployed to the Philistines as an intelligence officer in 1944. And despite being told repeatedly over and over again that the war was over, Onoda decided to stay in the jungle where he pilfered rice and food from the villagers and continued to fight his own war. He waged war, guerrilla warfare, against some of the unsuspecting villagers who lived in the area. He lived off of coconuts and bananas that he scavenged in the jungle. He evaded American and Filipino search parties and waged war, like I said, against those innocent villagers for 29 years. 29 years of surviving off the jungle and stolen food to fight a war that he no longer had to fight anymore because it was clearly over. Now, he was a, an intelligence officer, a lieutenant in the Japanese army, and even though he found pamphlets that explained the war was over, and even though he heard these radio frequencies talking about the war being over, he dismissed all those as being propaganda, thinking, no, no, the war's still going on, quickly dismissed them. Finally, a student heard about Onoda, heard that he never came back to his home in Japan, and in 1979 went to the, Phil the Philippines, and he pleaded with him to come back to Japan. It wasn't until the student went back to Japan, found the officer in charge of Onoda, the officer went to the Philippines and then finally dismissed Onoda, and that was finally whenever he decided to go home and he surrendered. He left in 1944, and then he returned back in 1975 to a world that was completely different from the one that he had left. You had skyscrapers and color television and rock music, and he admitted that this world was completely foreign to him. Now, as I listen, I hear this story, I wonder, why couldn't Onoda believe, in light of the radio announcements he heard, the pamphlets he found, the villagers who told him that the war was really over? Why couldn't Onoda just believe the facts or accept the facts? What was true, the fact of a long-finished war, could not penetrate the story that Onoda believed. Onoda was formed by a greater story outside of the war, a story informed by the values honor, war is a sacred mission and duty, and the deification of a nation state. You see, Onoda could not see himself outside of the story. 
Perhaps he even refused to see him outside of this story of waging this war. People learn facts, but they live stories. Why will people choose to ignore overwhelmingly clear, incredible truth that's right in front of them? Maybe a question that some of you like me have been asking for the past few years. Because the story means more. The story is identity. The stories make them, make us, who we are. We are the product of the stories we immerse ourselves in. And often, like we see with the case of Onoda, we swear fealty to some of these different stories. Now this summer, we've been journeying through the book of Numbers. We've been calling it Bar Midbar, from the Hebrew word meaning in the wilderness or from the wilderness, um, as we've been calling it together. And as we've journeyed through the book of Numbers, we've seen that the Israelites are trying to piece together their identity. They're trying to piece together their story because they've been formed up to this point from a number of different stories. And we have a collective group of minority people, the Canaanites, who had their own individual stories. They lived and were shaped under this empire, the Egyptian empire, for hundreds of years. And now they're journeying into the wilderness where they're trying to be shaped according to the values of Yahweh. They're a patchwork of very complicated stories. It's hard to live out of all those different fragmented stories. So they need something that is coherent. They need something that is cohesive. And so what Yahweh is doing with them in Bar Midbar, in the wilderness, is he's trying to wean them off of all those other loyalties they have to those other stories and trying to teach them how to be faithful to this story of their identity as a covenantal people. Um, We here at Redemption, now I've been here two years, gotten a little bit of a gist for the way that we do things, we believe that wilderness is an important part of our faith process. Um, Wilderness is a maturing process. It's a means by which we understand who we are in light of God's big story. And so we don't rush the wilderness process as much as we might want to, um, but we submit to it in the work that God is doing through it, no matter how long that might take. So the Israelites are here, bar midbar, in the wilderness. They are just have left Mount Sinai, are journeying to the, the land of promise that God has given them. And as we learned two weeks ago when we were together last time, they're learning how to change and adapt their faith. And we said part of living in the wilderness means that sometimes your faith evolves or it changes as a part of discerning with God and discerning as a community the ways that God is moving us forward. And so today, when we open up our story today in Numbers chapter 11, we're going to see a little bit more of this discerning process and the ways that God's people are trying to understand their story in light of the new things that Yahweh is doing. Now, I'm going to encourage you, if you have your phone with you, to go ahead and pull up Numbers chapter 11, um, just to kind of help you. I, for the purposes of the time we have together, I'm not going to read the whole passage because, listen, guys, it is 35 verses long. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. So having your passage open is going to help you follow along just a little bit. So we're in Numbers chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now, when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire abated. So that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. Verse 4. The camp followers with them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. 
Remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry and Moses was displeased. I'm going to jump to verse 16 if you're following along with me. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not bear it all by yourself. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wailed in the hearing of the Lord, saying, If only we had meat to eat. Surely it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat only one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Verse 31. Then a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quails from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. And a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, about two cubit deeps on the ground. So the people worked all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quails. The least anyone gathered was ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the cravering. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> we give thanks even for the challenging and difficult passages, right? Now let me be honest with you, because I tend to be a pretty honest person. Every time I read this passage, I tend to kind of portray the Israelites as a straw man. I think like, how ridiculous that they would be complaining about that food. Here they are in the wilderness, Yahweh's given them, them um, food to eat, and this is kind of like, like primitive cavemen who are just kind of caving into their id. And clearly I'm a higher developed person and I don't struggle with things like that. I wouldn't fall for something as stupid. That's typically what I do. But let me say this to as much as myself as I say to you that we want to resist the urge to kind of characterize the Israelites as being this straw man. Because there's actually something a little bit deeper going on below this story. And I'm wondering if we're able to see ourselves in them. And trying to remove ourselves from that straw man assumptions allows the text to read us as we are today. Now to help us understand what's really significant going on here, I drew us a picture. Tell me you're a teacher without telling me you're a teacher, right? I don't have a whiteboard. This is my whiteboard, you guys. This is my drawing of what is going on here in the camp. Now, don't look too closely because you'll see where I kind of gave up drawing all those little tents because I was like, my goodness, how many people live in this tent, in this camp, right? So many. So don't look too closely. Here's what's happening. Okay, this um, rebellion is coming from the outskirts. Um, in the text, they call it within the rabble or some translations say the riffraff. It's from the periphery of the camp where this is taking place. Um, this is a place where it would have been unclean. All of these unclean 
rebellions, these whispering, these murmurs, these um, complaints of contempt are seeping in from the periphery into the main part of the camp. Now, the main part of the camp, okay, where all God's people live, they're situated around the presence or the tabernacle. And this would have been the place where it would have been understood to be clean. Now, we don't really know entirely who was the riffraff or the rabble, as translation, some translations say, the people who are on the periphery. And what we do know, both from textual um, evidence and from archaeological evidence, is that there were a lot of people besides just the Israelites, a lot of other minorities who actually joined them whenever they were fleeing from Egypt. So it could be that the people in the periphery are the ones who have chosen, haven't chosen to consciously become an Israelite. Um, to become an Israelite, you had to be circumcised. You had to accept the order of this camp. And it, said, it could be that they're just kind of, you know, observing. They're maybe advantageous about being able to flee along with the Israelites. It's a little bit unclear, but this is where the rebellion is taking place. Now, unclean doesn't mean sinful. I think that's maybe a lot of the, the different ways we might think about them, but unclean doesn't mean sinful. Um, unclean means that it is not in its proper order or it's not in its proper place. So, for instance, I'll grab my tea here. If I were to put this here, chaos, right? Some of you, this like, makes you anxious just looking at here, like that could knock over. Thank goodness I have a lid on it, right? Then that'd be even more chaotic. This is unclean. This is out of the proper order. Now, if I move it back, this hasn't changed at all. This is the same in its properties, right? If I move it back here, suddenly it's clean because it's in the proper order. Hey, what this is telling us is that this, this, um, this rebellion, this, these feelings of contempt, is coming from the disorderly part, the pieces of the camp that aren't properly ordered according to Yahweh's values and according to Yahweh's purposes. They've perhaps ordered themselves around their own purposes and their own particular desires. And this rebellion starts with this from the text that says, they craved a craving. Okay, the Hebrew word here is ta'ava. Say that with me, ta'ava. There we go, ta'ava. That's our Hebrew word for today, since we like to learn at least one Hebrew word for each of our sermons here. Um, ta'ava is a craving. Now, this isn't just some desire, some, some wishy-washy want that you have. This is an obsession, and in Hebrew, it says it twice, they craved a craving, this absolute obsession. They're obsessed with this lack of food, or particularly the lack of food that they want. And because the Israelites, in their state of being in the wilderness, where it's uncomfortable and things aren't very familiar, it seems like the rest of the camp might be susceptible to this. Typically, when we're uncomfortable or when we're in positions of pain, we tend to be a lot more susceptible to things than we might have been otherwise. So I imagine that here on the outskirts of the camp, these feelings of contempt are being whispered and propagated over and over again. These feelings of contempt start rising and rising until you have people in the, the margins, okay, in the presence, who start adopting some of these different attitudes. They start to grow suspicious, maybe, of Yahweh, suspicious of this order that they had chosen to buy into and maybe we don't want this order. Maybe we want a little bit more of this uncleanness or this disorder in our lives. The rebellion, like we saw in the text, centers around that food. Now, the food is not just about the food. This is inception, okay? We're going to go a little bit below the layers to understand what's going on here with the food. Um, we have a Jedi Council. Maybe some of you don't realize this. We have a Jedi Council, who I lovingly call, who meet, have been meeting all summer long, every Monday. 
And we've been talking about these texts together and talking about the book of Numbers. Um, Marina McClure, who you just saw up here earlier, and Bethany Riddle are two people who've been kind of journeying alongside some of these texts. And they were reading um, some, some background commentary on this. She shared this with me. Um, one, one way we could look at this food is that this is what the poor people in Egypt did eat. There is some, some archaeological evidence that that could be the case. However, what they discovered is that the rabbis um, throughout the centuries have noted that some of these food groups could be sexual euphemisms. We looked at these, and then suddenly um, Marina and Bethany were like, think of them like emojis. And it suddenly makes sense. So think of these like emojis. This is me wagging my eyebrows, okay? Cucumbers, melons, leeks, and onions. Huh. <laughs> Probably, if they are used in such a, a, a sexual capacity, um, would be representative of the fertility gods and the fertility blessings that these gods would give them. Um, this is something that all ancient Eastern gods were known for, one of which would have been the Egyptian gods, that these gods would give, kind of in maybe a sexual connotation, would give gifts of fertility to the land and to the people who reside in that land. Um, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets often accuse God's people of um, worshiping these fertility gods, and they accuse them of prostituting themselves to these fertility gods. This is what the Israelites are craving these reliance on these particular fertility gods. It's not about the food, but it's about the system and maybe the easier system they had when they lived under the Egyptian empire. Um, their complaints about the food really reveals what their attitudes or what their motivations are. They're not complaining about the food as much as they're complaining about the burden that Yahweh has put them under. In Egypt, they had a consistent system where they would frequently get those, those foods. They said they were never for want. They didn't have to do anything for them. But here in the wilderness, they have to rely on Yahweh, their new God. He gives them their food. And they aren't too happy about this system of food that Yahweh has set up for them. What's interesting is the Israelites have a very selective memory. They had to eat bread in Egypt. They did. They had all this food. But the cost of this food was blood, wasn't it? They were loyal to Egypt, we see here in this text, but God is trying to teach them how to be faithful now to him. God is trying to wean them off of that loyalty to Egypt and teaching them what does it look like to have a committed relationship with their new God. There's a difference between being loyal and being faithful, and I think we see this especially exhibited here in this text. The Israelites are being loyal, but God is calling them to faithfulness. We might kind of confuse the two, but there is a difference. And loyalty isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Um, loyalty isn't a Christian virtue that we have in our tradition. There's a difference between being loyal to Egypt and faithful in the wilderness. So I have this nice handy-dandy chart here. Let me get that on the slide. With the Israelites longing after this loyalty, they want allegiance without ethical demand. For the Israelites, this is the appeal. We could do whatever we want as long as we were being loyal to that empire. They would give us whatever we needed. At least that's how they spun it, right? Um, they could do whatever they wanted. They, they could have their own values. But as long as they were at least having those values and being loyal to Egypt, that those could coexist. However, under this new system that Yahweh is creating in the wilderness, he's trying to teach them how to abide with discipline and formation. 
Because now the Israelites exist in a relationship with God, in a relationship with the community, this means that there has to be boundaries and there has to be expectations. The Israelites can no longer live according to their own values, but they're being shaped and formed into the values now that Yahweh has for them. It's a little bit painful doing that in the wilderness. Under the loyalty system, under Egypt, the Israelites were abiding by consumerism. This system of Egypt appeased their appetites. So this is our second point here, appeased their appetites. Makes sense because, of course, if you appease the Israelites' appetites, it's going to keep them loyal to that system and keep them coming back over and over again. However, with this new faithfulness model in the wilderness, we see delayed gratification, where Yahweh isn't giving them exactly they want immediately, but he's trying to wean them off of those appetites. You see the difference? The loyalty emboldens those appetites, whereas the wilderness tries to... Um, tries to train those appetites. Under the system of loyalty, under Egypt, we have a very consistent system where the Israelites knew exactly what it was that was expected of them. If we do this, if we put in this input, this is the output that Egypt is going to give us. So as long as we remain faithful and loyal, then this is what's going to happen to us. They knew what to expect. However, with the wilderness system, we have a very inconsistent system, which we see here on the next slide here. This inconsistent system is actually pretty scary. It's not that Yahweh's inconsistent, but it's that Yahweh's world is inconsistent, right? Um, because we're living in community that sometimes you can't always predict, you can't control what it is that God is going to do. You can't control what community is going to do. God wish that we could, right? You can't control that. And as a result, this inconsistent about what might happen. In a wilderness, you don't know when you're going to have food. You don't know when you're going to have rain. And as a result, you have to rely on Yahweh and that Yahweh will be faithful to you because God and God's world are both very complex things. With the old system, the Israelites tried to change the narrative or they changed the facts to retain their loyalty to Egypt. This is why they have a selective memory. Or, oh no, we got everyone we wanted, right? They forget about the sacrifice because idols always demand blood. They forget about that. But they have a very selective memory as they kind of reshape their facts in order to, to hold on to this reality that they want. Whereas with this new system that Yahweh is calling them into with faithfulness, here on the next slide, we have the Israelites wrestling with the narrative. The wrestling with the narrative is a means of being faithful. Sometimes we might think of wrestling as being opposed to faithfulness, but it can actually be the same thing. Because by wrestling, we're trying to stick with it, and we're trying to be committed, even when it might not make sense, or even when we might not have the answers. And in fact, this is how Israel understands their entire identity. Um, the, the name Israel means one who wrestles with God. This is who God's people are. They're constantly wrestling with God and questioning God and talking back to God. And God permits that. He actually says, this is part of being in a relationship with me. And we saw that when Tim talked about our faith evolving and changing and adapting. That part of that means that we wrestle with God as a means of being faithful. Bottom line here on this next slide here, the system of Egypt leads to idolatry, putting something in the place of God's place, whereas the system of faithfulness in the wilderness is a means of holiness or a means of belonging to God. What the Israelites are doing is they're fighting the formation. 
They're trying to hang on to the loyalty when God is calling them out of that loyalty and trying to teach them how to be faithful. And because they're holding on to that loyalty, which is personified by that craving, this makes God very angry. It's because God is a jealous God. You can't serve two masters, just like Matthew says, Matthew 6. You can't serve both God and money, or you can't serve both God and fill in the blank for whatever you want. God has been training their appetites this whole time, but Israel has been resistant to this training system. And so this is what Yahweh accuses them of. He says, this is why I quote here from, from the text, you have rejected Yahweh who is in your midst. You have rejected me. Because you rejected this system that I'm calling you into, this new way of being faithful, as a result, you have rejected me, and I am right here available to you. Do you hear the pain in the accusation? He's being rejected. So in response to their complaining, Yahweh gives them exactly what they want. It's not a curse. I don't know what tradition, but I think it's a curse. May you get exactly what you want. It's exactly what God does. He says, you are going to eat this quail. Okay, you want some meat? You're going to eat it out of your nostrils. You're going to be so sick of it. He describes the quail. It's a curse. It's a judgment. He's very clear in the language that he's using. It's a warning. It's okay, you want this? Let me tell you. This is a craving. This does not bring you further into my presence. This brings you further out of it. It's a test. And yet we see that the people, despite the language that Yahweh uses about it, clearly warning them, don't pursue this meat. I'm going to give it to you, but don't do it. They still are loyal to their previous ways of living. Now, I want you to notice where Yahweh sends the quail. So here's my next picture. Once again, prepare to be amazed. Here it is. <laughs> now we have a reversal of the movement. Whereas before the craving was encroaching on the presence, encroaching on the order, now the temptation is for the Israelites to move from the clean, from the order, into the disorder. In other words, the craving is tempting them to leave the presence. It's making them leave the place by which they are situated around Yahweh's presence. Yahweh's giving them choice. You can either move toward me, you can either be formed and become faithful to me, or you can give into this craving, into this other narrative, this other loyalty, and you can move further away from my presence. Now, it's interesting, those who pursue moving away from Yahweh's presence, it says that they, it's like a day's journey on each side, so they really move away from God's presence. And then an interesting detail, it says that they, after they gather all the quail, which is a whole bunch of quail, it says that they spread out the quail, and as I was looking at this, this was actually a practice where you would salt the quail and dry it out so that now you have kind of like quail jerky, which doesn't sound very appetizing to me, but apparently that's what they do. This was an Egyptian practice. So not only are they moving away from the periphery of God's presence, but in order to do so, they're using the loyal practices, the loyal ties to this other empire by which to do this. And the way that the text concludes is by warning us that the people with the craving, this craving ultimately leads to death because it removes God's people from God's presence. This is the way that the book of James said it, James chapter one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when desire has conceived, it engenders or gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown gives birth to death. The craving, 
leads finally to death. In 2018, there was a movie, um, an indie movie by the name of Beautiful Boy, which is actually based off of a memoir. And in this memoir, a dad recalls a very trying time in his life when his son was battling very severe addiction to alcohol and drugs. And in the movie, I haven't read the book, but in the movie, the son has overdosed quite a few times throughout the film, and he's finally in a recovery group. And the son is recounting, his name is Nick, Nick is recounting the time that he woke up in a hospital bed and had no context for what had just happened to him. He woke up and there was a medical professional in the room and the person asked him, Nick, what's your problem? And Nick replied, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. I mean, isn't it kind of obvious that's what I am? And the person turned in and said, no, that's not your problem. That's how you're trying to treat your problem. Our craving is never the craving. A craving always reveals something below the surface. It's never the problem, but it's a symptom of a deeper problem. How we might choose to treat a deeper problem, or a deeper loyalty, or a deeper narrative. So here's the question we must ask ourselves. What do we crave, and what does that craving reveal, and what demands our loyalty? It could be substances, like we have here with the case of Nick, it could also be the American pursuit of happiness, the good life, or whatever we might assume the good life is. It could be trying to have, hold on to a system of certainty, a simple black and white world where we have fundamentalism, which is on both progressive and conservative sides. But all of these cravings, all of these loyalties, ultimately create division in our souls. And what God calls the Israelites in the text and what God calls people today is to live an undivided life. We weren't caught between living between faithfulness and loyalty, but choosing to live according to God's faithful practices. How do we live the undivided life? Well, in the narrative, Yahweh is training them how to live undivided lives, how to prioritize situating themselves around the presence, around the presence of Yahweh. This is what it means to live a life of undivided attention. In the Christian tradition, we have a spiritual discipline called simplicity. Some, we might, maybe another way to think about simplicity would be soul minimalism, as the spiritual director, Emily P. Friedman, calls it, soul minimalism. And um, we talk a lot about, I think, minimalism in our culture. We talk about decluttering our houses or maybe living more simply according to our finances. But soul minimalism or simplicity is decluttering our souls so that we have an undivided attention on the presence. It means learning to have a single focus. It means how do we declutter our spaces, our spiritual spaces, and how do we listen and become more attuned to Yahweh's presence in our lives? What might it look like when I allow my soul to catch up with my body, because my body is always moving way faster than my soul, and what might happen when I settle into myself and listen to all the noise and clutter and discern what is really demanding my attention. Um, Richard Foster is a spiritual director, and he has a book called The Freedom of Simplicity. So I'm going to leave you with a quote from him. Here is how Foster describes the life of faithfulness up here on the screen. He says, although many times we do not pay attention to the holy whisper, increasingly we do. We are less and less discouraged by our many wanderings in the wilderness because... Having tasted the land of promise, we desire it more and more. 
As much as we may flirt with double-minded living, our real love is singleness of purpose, and increasingly it is capturing our heart. May God's presence capture our heart. The one who calls us to faithfulness will be faithful to us, even when we wander away in the wilderness. So may God capture our hearts and our attentions so that we may remain in God's presence. Amen. Let's pray together. God, as we settle into our bodies today, may you remind us that you are a good God, that you never make us feel shame, that shame is not an emotion from you, but yet at the same time, you love us so much that you want to call us into a life of faithfulness. God, as we sit in these bodies that you have so graciously given us, we ask that you would help us to call to minds the ways that maybe we've been divided. God, you are faithful, despite the ways that maybe we are unfaithful, and we give you praise for that. But God, I ask that you would call us into greater faithfulness, that you would remind us of the ways that even little things can make a big difference according to your kingdom. And that as we are continued shaped by the presence and continue to shape by your Holy Spirit, that we as a community would guard our hearts and guard our minds according to your son Jesus, that we would live as the people it is that you have called us to be, people who are called by holiness instead of idolatry, people who don't live according to systems of the world but living according to faithfulness with you. And God, for those who maybe are especially feel like they're in a wilderness right now, I ask that you would give them an extra special measure of grace, that they would be able to sense the way that maybe this is a means of grace, a means of of understanding your presence with them today. We love you so much, God. We're grateful for the ways that you shape us and the ways that you continue to shape us even right now in this community of imperfect people. We love you, God. Amen. Um, and if you're kind of new here and are unsure how we do that, um, we uh, ushers will come down and they'll release you row by row. You can just come up front and choose a server, and the servers will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can respond with amen or I will remember or however you, however you choose to respond. Um, again, I just want to remind you that there's no barrier to this table. If you call on the name of Christ, um, you are welcome. First Corinthians. Um, we'll read uh, what the Apostle Paul told the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. You can stand. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. We pray that you will come live inside us and make us new from the inside and out. 
and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come?